Well, good morning. What a special time of worship. What a great time to be in God's house, isn't it? I can't think of another place this morning I'd rather be than right here. You know, one of the things as the founder and CEO of Dulas that I get to do is I get the privilege of preaching and teaching all over the world. But let me just say to you this morning, there's no place like home. And so for me to get to be here and to speak to you, my church family, Susan and I are members here and our daughter and their family are members here. This is home for us. We live in Ballantrae, so uh, it's great being a part of a community, a body of believers called Westwood. I hope you'll look inside your order of service and take out the outline that we'll use as a listening guide this morning. And if you have your Bibles or your iPhone or your iPad, if you'll go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 here in just a few minutes. I've entitled the talk today, A Crossing Over. A Crossing Over. When we think about the name for God's people in the Old Testament, we typically think about the name, the Israelites. But there was a name that was used for God's people before that. And church family, what was that name? It was the Hebrews. That's exactly right. So I want you to write this down. The people of God, very early on, were called Hebrews. This is a little awkward, but the Hebrew word for Hebrew (laughs) is the word Ivri. I-V-R-I. And at the root... Meaning of that word, it means literally from the other side or to cross over. One of the amazing things about God is that God never does anything haphazardly. Will you agree with that? God does everything with purpose and everything with reason. We're going to see that here because when we look back in the scripture, we look at the first time the word Hebrew and when it appeared, it appeared actually in Genesis chapter 14 verse 13 where it says, Abram the Hebrew. Now let me tell you the significance of that. If you go to the end of Genesis chapter 11 and you see part of the story where Abram is in the is in the area of the Ur of the Chaldeans. His dad is Terah. He's married to Sarai and his nephew Lot. And what happens is they travel 600 miles to the north-northwest, and they settle in an area called Haran. They stay in Haran until the death of Terah, and then the beginning of just chapter 12, we see where God says to Abram, get up and go to the land that I am going to show you. So he travels to the area of Shechem in the area of Negev, another 400 miles south. Now get this, they traveled a thousand miles by foot, in a cart, on a camel, however they had their means of travel. And get this, it'd be like traveling from Birmingham to New York City on foot. Now that's the kind of travel that they partook of. Now here's the significance. The Ur of the Chaldeans was on the easternmost side of the known world, and Shechem and the Negev was on the most western side of the known world. So 
Abram the Hebrew did what? He went from the other side to the side of the world. It's amazing. Even in this name, he crossed over from the far east to the most west part. So we know the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We understand the significance of their story. And yet this morning, I want us to look at another Hebrew. As a matter of fact, we find this in Exodus chapter 2, verse 6. There is a baby that's put in a basket and set sail in the Nile River. What was his name, church? Moses. So Pharaoh's daughter is out next to the river, and they find this baby. And how she describes Moses is he's one of the children of the what? the Hebrews. So here's Moses. He's a child of those who cross over. And so that's what I want us to look at today. Now, as a speaker, and Pastor Kenneth and others who speak would know that we're always taught to sort of take the majority of our comments and put them toward where we feel like 80% of the people in the room are. So let me just go ahead and tell you, this is going to be my time to make you mad. This is going to be my time to go, what do you mean calling me these two things? But I want you to stay with me until the end of the message, and I believe you would say, you know, David, that could absolutely be true because today I believe in this room and in the churches all over America today, we're in dire need of a crossing over. We need a crossing over for those who are, and I want you to write this, dead, and those who are wandering. We're going to see this as this narrative of Moses and the Hebrew people unfold. So the first thing I want you to write down under point number one is this. God made a provision for the Hebrews, and by the way, us, to cross over from death to life and from bondage to freedom. So why did God allow Moses to be brought into the house of Pharaoh? God allowed Moses to be brought into the house of Pharaoh because he was going to be the instrument that God used to have the Hebrews set free from the bondage that they had been on. Now get the timeline of this. From the time of Abram leaving the Ur of the Chaldeans to the time Moses was plucked out of the Nile River is 430 years 400 years the Hebrews had been in bondage in the country of Egypt. And God sent Moses to be his mouthpiece, his instrument to have the Hebrew people set free. So as Moses grows up, you know the story, we don't have time to cover all that today, but Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh was not very receptive to that. And so God said, that's okay, Pharaoh, I'll get your attention. Let me, let me ask you, have you, have you had a time in your life when you were not very receptive to what God said and he sent you something to get your attention? Maybe he's only done that to me, but let me tell you, he certainly does it here. So what does he do? He turns the water to blood in the country. What does he do? He sends frogs. 
Ouch. He sends gnats, flies. He takes out all the Egyptian, you know, livestock and leaves the Hebrew livestock alive. He sends boils. He sends hail. He sends locusts. He sends darkness. And then he sends the tenth plague, the plague of all plagues, the plague that moves Pharaoh. And it was the promise that if he did not let the people go, then God was going to literally take the life of every firstborn, every firstborn in the country. So let's look at that here in Exodus chapter 12. Because he says, I'm going to send the deaf angel And the death angel is going to go out through the country, and yet God, as he has today, then made a provision to be able to go from death to life. So here we go. Look, it says, the, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike some, or does it say all, church? All. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Every firstborn life was at risk. Every firstborn in the land had a death sentence, including the Hebrews. But what did God do? God gave them a provision. He said, take a lamb, a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, slaughter the lamb and sacrifice, roast the meat and eat it in its entirety. Take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the doorpost so that when the death angel comes through and he sees the blood, then he will pass over He will move from this death sentence to life. Isn't it interesting how we can go all the way back to the beginning of time and see consistency in the Word of God? Amazing. As a matter of fact, I want you to write this down because this is so, so significant. Without the blood... There is no possibility of life. None. As we're sitting in this room today, even though there could be someone here that's a walking dead person, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a a moment, because you can be, you can be physically alive and spiritually dead, right? That's what the Bible teaches us. The truth of the matter is blood was connected to every covenant in the Bible. From the Abrahamic covenant to the new covenant, blood was always connected. So realizing that the blood of the sacrifice of the lamb to the, to the freedom of the Hebrews and them setting free is also true for us today. Let's look in the New Testament. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. Verse 8, most can quote, incredible verse, but the, the verse that follows is powerful. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, pay attention, we have now been justified by his what, church? 
the blood. We've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That word justified means when we stand before a righteous, holy God, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we will be standing before him just as if we never sinned. Can we be perfect on our own church? No. Can we be perfect through the shed blood of Jesus? Yes, we can. We certainly can. Just as there was blood on the wood doorpost, there was blood shed on a wood cross. And it was the shedding of that blood that allows us to be brought into a right relationship with a holy, perfect, righteous God. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 22, wades in and says, without the shedding of blood, guess what? There is no Remission of sin. The blood matters. Salvation comes through the blood. As a matter of fact, I want you to write this down. Salvation is the only way to freedom. Salvation is the only way to life. It is the only way to be brought out of bondage. Turn over with me into Exodus chapter 14. Let's see the narrative to continue in this whole idea of a crossing over. So Moses is set free. He gets the 1.2 to 1.5 million Hebrews. They're moving toward the land that God promised. They get to the Red Sea and in that journey, Pharaoh has a hardening of his heart, a changing of his mind, takes his army, pursues them, and literally is coming up from behind them to either recapture or kill them. There they stand. They've been set free, and yet here they are standing in something that looks like death is imminent. And Moses says to them, be still. Stand here and be quiet and do what? Watch the power of God. Watch God fight for you. Watch God be your salvation. Wow, look at what it says here. It says, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent, to stand there in faith, to stand there in confidence, to watch the hand of God. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, a crossing over. From what? From bondage to freedom, from death to life, a crossing over. You see, they had a death sentence. And I want you to know this truth this morning. I want you to write this down. Jesus came to give us a way out of our death sentence. Jesus came to give us a way out because understand this. When we come into the world, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. 
And Jesus came in a way to be able to get us out of bondage. Look at what the New Testament says in Luke chapter 4. And I don't know if your Bible has red letters in it or not, but these are red letters. These are the very words of Jesus as he quotes Isaiah 61, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why did Jesus come? To seek and to save that which was lost. Why did Jesus come? Yes, he healed those who were blind physically. But is that why he came? No. He came to give sight to those who were spiritually blind. He came to set free those who were in shackles of their lostness. He came to set captives free, to give sight to the blind physically and spiritually. He came so that those who were in shackles of lostness could be set free. Listen, every person on the planet outside of Jesus is dead. Every person on the planet outside of Jesus is in need of a Savior because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. I've used this quote before and Billy Graham, as you know, was an incredible man of God, and he went to be with the Lord recently. And, you know, he made the statement that he believed that 82% of the people who attend church all across America are lost. Think about that. If he got that right, think about that. What, what if he only missed it by half? Think about that. The people who walk into the doors of the church that think because they're in the church, they are made right with God. You have to repent of your sin of unbelief. You have to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised you dead. There has to be an element of faith. How do we know, looking on the outside, how somebody is a believer, a Christ follower? Well, Jesus wades in on that in Matthew chapter 7. He says, you will know them by their what? Their fruit. What does he say? Because a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit. And a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. You will know them by their fruit. So let me ask you, what's what's the audit of the fruitfulness of your life because every one of us better be stepping back and doing that audit. What's the audit of the fruitfulness of the church in America? Does the church look like Jesus or does the church look like the world? We have to come to a conclusion about that because the reality is I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can say we see more of the world in the church than we should. So what needs to happen? Here is a cool statement, and, and I want you to, to grab all this. This statement is from Jonathan Kahn, uh, who is an incredible Messianic Jewish rabbi, and he says this, to be saved, one must become a Hebrew of spirit. Would you write that down? A Hebrew of spirit. What does the word mean, church? 
Hebrew? A crossing over. So what he's saying here is you're to become a hero, or, um, you're to become a Hebrew by crossing over, by accepting Jesus as your Savior, by realizing the blood that was shed. And there is a crossing over of spirit. Now let me ask you, if you wanted to be a Jew, could you be a Jew? I mean, we're born what we're born, right? We're talking about a crossing over of spirit. I love what Paul writes where he says that we have, in Romans chapter 11, been grafted in. Did you guys know that this book is an Eastern book? That this book really is a Jewish book? How we get in the story is when we accept Jesus the Jew, the Messiah, Yeshua, as our Savior, then we become a Hebrew, grafted in, crossing over from life to death. I'm sorry, from death to life. What, what an incredible picture. Let's move on. Number two, I want you to write this. God wants us to cross over from being wanderers to warriors. God wants us to cross over from being wanderers to warriors. So what happened after they crossed over? So as you've studied that, you remember that story, what happened? Did God just sort of take his hands off the Hebrew people? Did he just say, hey, man, go and just sort of do the best you can? Just, you know, I, I'm just kind of going to watch back and sit, step back and watch and just, you, you just kind of do the best you can. Did God do that to them? No way. What did he do? He gave them manna from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the tabernacle. He gave them the Ark of the Covenant. He gave them the law. He gave them the feast. He gave them the promise of the promised land. He led them right up to the entrance of the promised land. And what did they do? They were stiff-necked. They were disobedient. God had given them all of that. I mean, think about that, y'all. They, they followed a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They saw God separate the Red Sea, and they walked over on dry land. They saw God destroy the entire Egyptian army when the water came over them. They saw God do all of those things, and yet there they're standing where God has for them to be. And what do they do? Do they claim it? Do they move on it? No. They're stiff-necked, and what happens? God places them in the wilderness where they wander for 40 years until that entire generation dies off. So let me ask you, how many of you guys or how many of us are wandering? We see all that God has given us, and yet we're wandering. We know God's call. We know what he's asked us to do. We know what he's done for us. And yet we've come right up to the edge, right up to where God could use us, right up to where he could be glorified, and we become disobedient. So what's needed? I want you to write this. Repentance is a necessity for a wanderer to be restored. Look at what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says, and, and return to the Lord your God. That word return in the Hebrew means to turn back. The word for repentance means a turning, 
a 180-degree turn. So repentance is necessary unto salvation. Repentance is necessary to be restored. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today. With all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered. Man, I don't know about you, but I want to be right in the center of God's will for my life. I don't know about you, but man, when I get to the end of my life, I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, I want to, I, I don't know about you, but I want to shoot every spiritual bullet in my gun. I want my life to matter, don't you? I want to finish well, don't you? When I stand before Jesus, I don't want to stand before Jesus fruitless, do you? See, I believe God has called us to be a warrior. And I believe God's called us to be able to see victory. As a matter of fact, I want you to write down this. When the people of God repent and cross over from their disobedience and laziness, victories are a certainty. You know, I'm often asked, what do I see in the difference of the church in the East and the church in the West? I'm often asked, you know, in the areas of the world, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Bhutan, people, we've had 51 church planters killed in the last five years. And I'm often asked, what's the difference in the American church and the church in other places of the world? You know, there's a danger in affluence. Would you guys agree with that? Because you see, with affluence comes this attitude of self-reliance. I think one of the words that can describe the church today is the word, you know, we're, we're apathetic. We have affluence. We've, you know, we have so much. We, we have things to do and we have so many things. And as I see the rest of the world who have nothing I see real warriors, and I see real victory taking place. And yet, even in this movement, as they repented, and as they came out of wandering, as they came into the promised land, we saw victory after victory after victory. I want you to write this down. They defeated Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. They defeated Ai in chapter 8. They defeated southern Canaan. In chapter 10, they defeated northern Canaan in chapter 12. There were defeated kings by Moses in the first part of Joshua chapter 12. There were defeated kings by Joshua at the end of chapter 12. When God's people are running after the things of God, there will be victory. God calls us to be warriors, and so I, I kind of did a, uh, an acrostic of what it takes to become a warrior, or when we see a warrior, this is some of their characteristics. So I want you to write this down. Under the letter W, you've got to want the word. You know, I've been preaching for 30 years. I've never said it this way before. There's often times when I think about God's word, I say, we need to read the word. 
we need to memorize the word. We, we need to meditate on the word. And we do need to do all those things. But let me just tell you, those things aren't coming unless we want it. We have to want the word. We have to desire the word. We have to pursue the word. We have to have a passion to know what God's word is to us. We have to want it. Why don't we? Because you realize, statistically, only 2 to 3% of Christians read the Bible every day. 2 to 3%. I'm like, how can that even be possible? But the truth of the matter is 2 to 3%. Why? Because what does the Bible do? The sword cuts not just one way. It cuts both ways. So what does it do? It lays open our imperfections. It lays open our sinfulness. It lays open those things. Who wants to hear that? Obviously not very many. But what is it about that? Why does God do that? So that we can repent. So that we can be taught and become teachable. So that those changes that God brings to us, that we can take that and apply it. We've got to want the word. We've got to aggressively pray. You know, when Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, the first thing he says is to put on the belt of truth. The last thing he says is pray. How do we pray? I mean, let's just step back and evaluate that for a second. How do we pray? We have this want list, don't we? Hey, we want the right wife or the right husband or the right kids or the right house or the right car or the right job. We want this. We don't want that. Oh, man, heal us of that. Please don't let us get sick. We intercede on behalf of others kind of in the same way. Listen, I believe that we need to suit up. I believe one of the ways we prepare for battle is to pray preparing for battle. As I've traveled the world and talked to church planters in 36 countries on four continents, I've never once by one of them been asked for money. And I've never been with one of them that they didn't ask me to be praying and interceding on their behalf. We need to be praying differently. God, put people in my path. Prepare me to share the gospel. Lord, May your name go forth around the nations. May we pray for those people who are being persecuted and martyred for your name's sake. We need to aggressively pray. The next two R's, and I, I love the fact that this is at the middle of a warrior. Because this is at the vortex of in, the entirety of God and God's plan. And that is to radically and regularly share the gospel to radically and regularly share the gospel. It shouldn't surprise us that everything I read says 2 to 3% of Christians regularly share the gospel. There is a direct correlation to how much people spend time in the word and sharing the gospel. Let me ask you this question. Had you been standing there at the ascension of Jesus and there weren't 120 people there. There was only one person standing there, and it was you. Where would Christendom be today in the number of people that you led to Christ in your lifetime? We all have to be asking ourselves those kinds of questions. The I instruct others how to fight. We need to mentor. We need to disciple. We need to be holding each other accountable. And the O is open hands. If we're going to be a warrior, our hands have to be open. As I talk to Christians all over the place, I see people who have closed hands. 
I have people who are conditional in their fellowship. They'll say, hey, listen, I'll go across the street, but I'm not going to Africa. We have a closed hand. Warriors say, my yes is on the table. And then finally, we've got to run from the things of this world. I want you to write this. The blood of those that we do not share the gospel with is on our hands. You're going to hang on a second, David. Where is that in the Bible? Surely you're not talking about that from Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18, where God is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel and says, if you don't share what I say, when I say, how I say, then the outcome will be that blood on your hand. You're not talking about that. That's out of context. No, 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 listen to me. What he said was, you have to do what I direct you to do. You say, give us a New Testament example of that. Turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 26, and you'll see Paul. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, the blood of the hands in this region are not on my hands because I proclaim the gospel faithfully in this place. Make no mistake, our silence is a sin, and we will be judged for that. I want to close with Spurgeon's comment, which was an incredible thing. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Make no mistake. There must be a crossing over from death to life and from wandering to warriors. We saw it in the Old Testament. We saw it in the New Testament. May we see it today in the 21st century.